Julie. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for the ability to gather here this morning and consider your word together. But Lord, we acknowledge this morning that in and of ourselves, the task is too much. Lord, particularly given the topic at hand this morning, it is too much in and of ourselves to take in. God, it's too much for me to try to lay out. It's too much for the natural mind to absorb. So this morning we ask for your grace, God. We ask that you would show your grace in helping me to rightly divide your word. I pray, God, that you would give grace in helping your people to clearly see who you are. God, we ask this morning that by your grace you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things out of your word. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The late theologian A.W. Tozer once said, the most important thing about you, the most important thing about you is what comes to mind when you think of God. He says this will give shape to everything else in your life, what you think of God. Now, I try to stay away from generalities and sweeping statements, but I must say that in this instance, Tozer was spot on. And I would go a step further to say that the most important thing that should come to mind when thinking of God is His holiness. And to prove this biblically, we need only consider what the Lord Jesus himself said was the first thing that we should pray for. Do you remember? When the disciples asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus laid out the model for what prayer life should look like in the Lord's Prayer. Do you remember what the first petition Jesus said you should pray was? What the first thing you should ask for was? He says, Pray like this, Father, hallowed be your name. Which is to ask God that he would help us to see him and honor him for who he is in his holiness. So so if Jesus puts this first on the list of things that we need to be asking God for, it must be tremendously significant. It must have some serious spiritual implications for your life. The question becomes, what are these spiritual implications? What is it to see God rightly, and what does that produce? Well, that's what Isaiah 6 clearly outlines for us. And that is why we're looking at this passage this morning. Around 740 B.C., the prophet Isaiah was given a vision of heaven. But more importantly, he was given a glimpse of God in heaven. This was the inauguration of his ministry to God's people. And we discover that this event, Isaiah's seeing the Lord, marked his life from that moment forward. This vision shaped his thinking, it informed his ministry, and it fueled his worship for his entire life. And it's just this insight that the church needs to avoid our worship 
becoming anemic. It's the insight that we need if we're going to render right worship to God. In fact, that's the point of the text this morning. The the thrust of Isaiah's words here is to communicate that a right vision of God brings two things. A right vision of God brings a right perception of man and a right response to his creator. So with that framework in mind, let's look to the text and hear what the Spirit says to the church. Isaiah 6, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hands a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. This is the word of the Lord. Upon reading this text, it becomes clear that this is about the holiness of God. But while it displays the holiness of God to us, and it displays the effects of encountering that holiness, this text does not provide a definition of holiness for us. And this is important because we often use words like holiness or glory without really having a concrete understanding of what those things actually are. And and, and quite honestly, unless you've done some pointed study on the concept of holiness, you can easily get confused because it's truly a multifaceted kind of word, an idea. So I think it'd be helpful to get a solid definition of holiness as we approach the text where Isaiah labors to depict it for us. Throughout the scriptures, we find that God's holiness is understood in two ways, one primary, the other secondary. The secondary way is in reference to his moral purity and perfection. But the primary definition of God's holiness the one that Jesus told us to pray for is this. God's holiness is, it primarily refers to his being altogether other than everything that he has made. It refers to him being separate and set apart unto himself. So with that in mind, we can better understand what Isaiah is trying to display for us in the text. And the first thing we observe here is that Isaiah's vision is not so much fixed on a what, but a who. Isaiah wastes no time telling us that he sees the Lord. But but we should take note here that when Isaiah begins to describe the Lord, he begins referring to him specifically as Adonai, which means 
the sovereign one. Now, this is important because the writers of Scripture, you understand, are always doing something with what they're saying. They're communicating very specific ideas by way of their word selection. There are multiple ways to refer to God in the Hebrew language that the English simply renders Lord. And in this passage before us, Isaiah later transitions to another use of the term Lord. So when the prophet says here that he saw Adonai, he's honing in on a specific reality. He's telling us that his eyes were fixed on the one who is supreme, the sovereign one. He's saying that in this moment, I saw the one who is the ruler of all and everything. I saw the one who is unmatched in his might and control. And we hear words like this so often, but we rarely give pause long enough to really consider exactly what the writers of Scripture are communicating when they cast such grandiose visions of God. We forget too easily the fact that when Isaiah says that he saw the sovereign one, he means real sovereignty. The kind of power and control that tells bodies of water we tell ocean or we call oceans where they must stop and then holds them in their place from day to day. We read in Proverbs 8 that it's the sovereign one who assigned the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command. He commands creation and it obeys. And we forget how wondrous this is until something like a tsunami or a hurricane comes up and just demolishes a whole island or carries a part of a city off into the sea. And only then are we left with a renewed appreciation of the might and control that the Lord so graciously exercises day by day and moment by moment. This, you see, is what Isaiah intends when he says, I saw the sovereign one. But the prophet doesn't stop there. He goes on to tell us in what manner he saw the sovereign one. We read that he saw him sitting upon a throne. And this is fitting because it's the only rightful place for a true sovereign one to be located. We understand even from an earthly perspective that historically great kings have sat on great elaborate thrones. A monarch would issue commands and decrees from his throne and all of his subjects were expected to comply without hesitation. Why? Because it came from the one who sits on the authoritative seat, the throne. And the same is true for the Lord God. He rules his kingdom from his throne. But the majestic nature of his throne is unsurpassed by even the most extravagant of earthly thrones. Just a brief survey of the activity of God as he sits on his throne will show the distinctive splendor of his majesty. Consider with me Psalm 93 verse 2 which says, Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. And so with this, we're left to try to comprehend the reality of God's eternality. The fact that God has no beginning. I mean, if you just want to melt your mind this afternoon, meditate on that for a little while. Think about the fact that God never started to be. 
His throne is established from of old. And when there came a time, or excuse me, a beginning of what we understand to be time, it's because He created it. Yet, even then, once time had begun, and the Lord created this earth, His enthroned dominion did not end. No, He has not merely set up creation from His throne, but it's from there that He maintains and sustains it from day to day. Colossians 1.17 tells us of the Lord Jesus that it's in Christ that all things hold together. And by this, we understand that the world that we live in would literally come apart at the seams if it were not for the good rule of a sovereign one who sits on his throne commanding it to be so. Moreover, Isaiah goes on to explain to the readers the position of this glorious throne. It's not enough to understand that Isaiah's vision was above the cosmos, in heaven, within the very throne room of God. No. So lofty a vision as that might be to see God in heaven receiving praise from the creatures that he has made, the truth is that the holiness of God demands something even more than that. Therefore, to hear Isaiah tell it, when he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, that throne was high and lifted up. Why is it high and lifted up? Because while heaven is the dwelling place of Almighty God, and no unholiness can reside in His presence, the fact remains that there are creatures He has made for His glory that do share that space with Him. And it is never to be mistaken who the Creator is and who the creatures are. Who is the sovereign and who are the subjects? Thus, the gaze of those who would worship Him don't look horizontally as though they are looking around themselves even in that heavenly space. No, their gaze must be directed upward to a place higher than themselves because He is to be exalted above all others. And continuing this language of kingship, in verse 1, Isaiah scrambles for words to communicate what he sees filling the throne room, saying, the train of his robe filled the temple. And again, we understand that historically, a, a royal figure would often be adorned with uh, a, a robe that tr- you know, would, would be draped over them and trail behind them. And the, the size of that robe and the material it was made from often indicated something of the wealth and power of that king or queen. The larger the robe, the longer the train that followed, the greater that kingdom would be perceived to be. If you were in a throne room of a most magnificent king, you might find yourself in a a room or a hall the size of a, a large house. And if it was a great king, you might see that king's robe literally taking up like half of the floor space there. And the the same was true of the material. If it was woven of a fine material, it reflected the grandeur of the monarch and their rule. The finer the material, the more spectacular the kingdom, you see. And when we read here of God's robe, we must understand that Isaiah is not seeing a literal robe. 
the Lord does not put on a garment made of material. We know from other texts of Scripture that He's clothed in a much more splendid manner than that. In Psalm 93, we read, The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. And hear the worship of Psalm 104. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering Yourself with light as a garment. Therefore, when Isaiah sees the train of his robe filling the temple, what he's laboring to describe is how the incredible radiance of God's glory flows out from him and fills all of his creation. Because his holiness is so pronounced and so intense, majesty and glory simply flow out from him in abundance. And with that, we're struck as we turn to verse 2. Because Isaiah turns his attention away from the Lord and toward the angels that were ministering in God's presence. And this is sort of striking because he does this with no explanation at first. If you're reading along there, the reader is tempted to say, what are you doing, Isaiah? Don't turn your gaze. You're fixed on the Lord of glory. It's Him we want to know about. But it becomes clear very quickly that the seraphim themselves are not the focus of the remainder of Isaiah's vision. No, the seraphim are only mentioned here so that God's holiness would be more clearly perceived. You see, everything about these creatures points to their most holy creator. We could discuss the various aspects of these angels, but for time's sake, we'll just consider why Isaiah notes their presence here. You see, these are, as best we can tell, the most holy creatures that God ever created. And we can draw that conclusion from their proximity to the throne of God. The fact is that nothing unholy can exist in the presence of God. He can't even look at sin, according to Habakkuk 1. Yet, when we see here these seraphim, we see them flying about the throne of God. And Isaiah notes their presence because of the activity that consumes these most holy creatures. What is their activity? It is to continually declare the utter holiness of God. Even they who who maintain a holy existence recognized and reveled in the reality that God was, is, and always will be holy. This was the refrain of their worship. As Isaiah says, they called to each other, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And this declaration of the seraphim should cause us to stop and give the utmost consideration to this attribute of God. The threefold repetition that Isaiah records here is intended to communicate great emphasis. In the Hebrew language, to repeat a word three times is to demand that attention be given to it. It's the equivalent of our our modern practice of underlining and boldening and italicizing a word. This repetition was not meaningless. On the contrary, in the Scriptures, it's reserved for those things that should capture our most devoted attention. In fact, it's quite revealing how much attention we should give the holiness of God 
when you consider that this is the only attribute of God that receives this threefold repetition in the Scriptures. Nowhere in the Bible will you ever read that God is love, love, love. Or mercy, mercy, mercy. Nor will you read that God is mighty, mighty, mighty. No, the holiness of God is the most exalted and highlighted aspect of His existence. And the reason for that, brothers and sisters, is because the holiness of God is the attribute of God from which all His other attributes flow. Every other characteristic of Him finds its source in His holiness. One theologian remarks concerning God's holiness that this may be said to be a transcendental attribute that, as it were, runs through the rest, casting luster upon them all. It is the attribute of attribute, he says. So I said that every other characteristic of God finds its source in his holiness. And what I mean is that it's his holiness that brings forth all that he is. You see, God is just and perfectly so because he's holy. God is merciful and perfectly so because he's holy. He is vengeful because he's holy. He is kind because he's holy. All that he is and all that he does can be explained by his holiness. It is that single characteristic that sets him apart as completely other than his creatures. So, as we continue in the text, what results from this marvelous vision of God's holiness? When one encounters something of greatness, it's sure to give rise to an especially great response, right? And that's exactly what we find here. This most profound encounter elicits a profound response from Isaiah. We see here that upon witnessing the holiness of God, the prophet is compelled to worship. But he does so in the most striking way. Isaiah proceeds here to pronounce a curse on himself, exclaiming, Woe is me, for I am lost. Some translations here say, For I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, he says. Now what's so remarkable about this explanation is that this is the prophet of God we're talking about. I mean, come on. This is no rebellious sinner who went about indulging in obvious sin. One could argue that this guy was the most holy man on earth in his era. After all, Isaiah stands out among all the Old Testament prophets as the one who is privileged to preach more about Christ before his coming than any other. His devotion to God could not be called into question. And yet still, we see him crying out that in the presence of the Holy One, he is lost and of unclean lips. You see, the, the clearness with which Isaiah was able to perceive the Lord highlighted for him all of the less than holy aspects of his life. And this drew from his lips a worshipful confession before the Lord. And he makes no distinction between himself and the others on the earth, saying of them also that he dwells in the midst of a people of unclean lips. 
And the reason that this is Isaiah's response becomes clear at the end of that verse when he says, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Whenever we see God rightly, when we get a glimpse of His radiant holiness, that which makes Him altogether transcendent and pure, we see how truly impure and simple mankind is. And out of this, we begin to have a a heightened sensitivity to the unholiness that abounds in this broken and fallen world. In short, we begin to see that He is the Creator and we are but His creatures. Friends, the church in our culture needs this kind of renewed vision of God's holiness so desperately bad. Because without this, we wind up coming to places like this this morning and hearing sermons about us, singing songs centered on us, and praying prayers that are emphasizing us. And eventually what this leads to is a life that's centered on us. You see, what you worship and how you worship over time impacts how you live your life. But don't take my word for it. Look at the passage. It's what we find next in the text. The prophet does not simply gain a new perspective of himself and the world. And he's not led only to a higher degree of private worship. No, this new perspective and heightened degree of private worship gives way to very intentional service. Long before the New Testament epistle of James was written, Isaiah had a healthy understanding of the biblical truth that faith apart from works is dead. We see this from Isaiah's response in verse 8. It becomes clear to the prophet that the Lord desired a servant. And with this newfound understanding of God's holiness, Isaiah threw himself at the opportunity to serve the sovereign king. Look at verse 8 with me. When the Lord contemplates aloud, whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Isaiah exclaims, Here am I. Send me. Isaiah, you see, is not concerned with what the task may entail, where it may take him, or how it's going to be accomplished. He yearned only to pour himself out for the holy God who rules over all. In fact, if there's one thing Isaiah's life teaches us, it's that If you've understood the holiness of God, you will carry with you a keen sense of awareness of the distance between the world above and this world below, and you'll be compelled to expose others to the reality of that distance. And again, this is perfectly consistent with the progression of the Lord's Prayer I asked you to recall earlier. Immediately, after saying we should ask the Lord to help us see Him and honor Him as holy, what does Jesus then say we should ask for? Your kingdom come, your will be done. Now, that means several things, but not least among them is the daily surrendering of your will to God's that He might use you for the building of His kingdom. Do you see the progression? When you see God rightly, we're compelled to worship and serve Him. Now, you might be saying, well, 
what does this really have to do with me? I mean, I believe everything that's been said about what a vision of God brings, but I'm not Isaiah. (laughs) And I'm pretty sure I'll never have some grand vision of God in heaven, not this side of glory at least. So how am I to respond to God like Isaiah if I'm not seeing God like Isaiah saw him? And to this, I would respond, you're, you're absolutely right. You should not expect to have the experience that Isaiah had. But here's the thing. God has not hidden himself from you, friends. He has revealed himself in his word so sufficiently that you could spend all of your life meditating on his attributes with full confidence that you will never run the well dry of his awe-inspiring magnificence. I mean, take what we've been discussing in this chapter. Yes, the experience was Isaiah's, but the Spirit of God inspired it to be recorded so that our hearts would be filled with wonder of God. So the the method of beholding God in His holiness today is the same that it has been throughout all of the history of the people of God. And that is to look to Him in His Word. There we, we behold God. And in beholding God, we're drawn to worship God. Only then, when we behold God, can Isaiah's response become the response of each one here who claims the name of Christ. And as a child of God, you can ask the Lord to be gracious to you and remind you of His true nature, that holy nature that makes Him who He is. And you might ask, well, how will I know when He begins to reveal this, His holiness to me in His Word? Well, you'll know because your sense for the things of the world will shift. And then you'll be duty-bound to pour yourself out in worship and service to the Lord God. Now, on a final note, perhaps you're here this morning and you've never before understood the holiness of God in even the most basic manner. And what I mean is maybe you've never understood the biblical truth that God's holiness demands moral perfection from man as his creation. But we have all been infected with exactly the opposite of what God demands. We've been born with a sinful nature and act in complete consistency with that nature, transgressing God just as naturally as we draw our next breath. And if that's you, if you haven't understood or acknowledged how God is other than us in that manner, you should know there are eternal consequences for this distance caused by your sin. It entails an eternity away from this God and suffering under His holy wrath. But if that's you, you also need to know about the most remarkable display of God's holiness. And that's this, friend, the clearest and most compelling demonstration of God's holiness is the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, on the cross, Jesus Christ, on the cross of Jesus Christ, excuse me, 
God the Father did not overlook the sin that is so rank and offensive to His holy nature. It was there that God required the most harsh payment of the ungodly acts of unrighteous men. But the glorious reality is this, that with a holy grace, with a grace totally beyond what we could perceive or comprehend, with a grace totally beyond what, it would, what we could come up with, with a holy grace, the Son of God stood in the place of unholy sinners on the cross. And, and if you believe on the Lord Jesus in His redemptive work on the cross, that payment will not only divert the wrath of God away from you in your unholy nature, listen, it will not only divert the wrath of God away from you. That work of Christ on the cross is enough to make you holy in the sight of the Sovereign One. Friends, I I can't even say that without just being taken back by the holiness of God involved in that act. I mean, think of the divine omniscience, the divine wisdom necessary to develop such a plan that he could be both just and the justifier of sinners. Think of the divine omnipotence needed to execute such a plan. And so this morning, if that's you, if you've not acknowledged God in this way or understood this about God, I charge you, believe that that work on the cross can make you clean and holy before the Sovereign One. That holy work can be applied to you today. So believe it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for who you are. Lord, it is who you are that gives way to every good thing that we know. It is who you are that we have to thank for grace, that we have to thank for redemption. It is who you are, Lord, that compels us to worship you. And so I pray this morning, God, that you would help us to see afresh who you are in your holiness, that we might be drawn to an even more devoted, Worship of you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.